This podcast is brought to you by SMA, provider of the world's leading inverter technology and backed by the world's leading service team. With more than 850 service experts, 90 service hubs, 30-plus gigawatts installed globally, and thousands of commercial and utility-scale projects completed worldwide, SMA is the partner of choice for your PV projects. For more, visit www.sma-america.com. For the week of October 31st, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello and welcome to the show. I am Stephen Lacey, your host and a senior editor at Green Tech Media, based as usual in Washington, D.C. This week, how did the top 50 most innovative companies in the world rank in their clean energy adoption and environmental policies? Then, later in the show, we'll look at how upcoming elections may impact U.S. utilities and ask why millennials are changing the way they define environmentalism. With me on this Halloween Eve are my co-hosts, dressed up in environmental-themed costumes to celebrate the holiday, just like we did last year. Catherine Hamilton is a co-founder and partner at 38 North Solutions, a clean energy public policy firm, and she is here in Washington with me. What are you dressed up as for Halloween, Catherine? Yeah, so you know I like to go retro. So uh, last year I went as Ready Kilowatt, which you reminded me of. Uh, this year I'm going to go back to Schoolhouse Rock. And people are just going to have to look on YouTube for Schoolhouse Rock and the character of the Bill. I'm just a Bill sitting here on Capitol Hill. And the Bill is so dejected and tired looking. And I'm going as the Expire Act in particular because <laughs> – we got to get this thing through. And if you watch the video, the bill doesn't necessarily move exactly the way it shows, but I think the character will show you the, about the tone I'm going to take. You're such a wonk. Uh, remind everyone what the, ready, uh, the Expire Act is. The Expire Act is the set of tax provisions that expired at the end of 2013 and that are in a package that the Senate passed through Finance Committee, and they just have to get through on the floor of the Senate, and then something has to happen in the House. Uh, ideally, something happens in the House first, but they include some of the clean energy tax credits like the production tax credit for wind. So Jigger's not with us today. He's on his way to Kenya, and I, I presume he's dressed up in costume on the airplane in spirit. At least he said he was. In his place, coming back on the show for the third time from the New York City area, is Andrew Winston. Andrew is a sustainability expert and the author of The Big Pivot. He's uh, changed his usual suit and tie for a costume as well. Andrew, welcome back, and uh, what's your costume today? Well, I've been, uh, thanks for having me, first of all, but uh, I, I've, uh, I've been torn between two, but I think I'm, if we're going to go with the energy gang, um, energy politics geek kind of quotient, it's going to be high, and given the elections coming up, I've decided to go as Senator Inhofe, um, you know, to reflect that he will may very well be the next head of the Energy and Environment Committee. So I'm just I'm trying to figure out the exact way to to demonstrate just being angry and dangerously misinformed. And you can wear a blindfold. You can wear a blindfold. Yeah, a blindfold. I was torn between that and just going as Tim Cook, which is, who has demonstrated this week that um, being gay doesn't isn't really big news anymore. I thought that was kind of amazing. This yeah, week. that was a fantastic piece of news. Yeah. it just kind of comes out and because he kind of mentioned it. You know, yeah. it's like you don't need covers of magazines. It's just like people are like, okay, 
It's like collective shrug. I just, I guess, I hope someday we'll get that that way when people come out as being in favor of climate legislation. <laughs> yeah. So actually, that's a really good segue into my costume. This Halloween, it's not about what I am. It's about what I'm not. And I am not a climate scientist. And because of that, you know, I can't say whether man is changing the climate. And that, of course, is the famous response from Republicans on the campaign trail who want to dodge questions from reporters and voters about their stance on climate change. And the number of candidates who use that quip is getting ludicrous now. It's the new sanitized version of climate denial. So while James Inhofe... Well, he staunchly believes that humans are not changing the climate. Many other Republicans are stepping back and using this, I'm not a climate scientist, to uh, fudge the issue. So that's what I'm not for Halloween. Excellent. Let's get into our stories. Uh, the Boston Consulting Group just released its list of the 50 most innovative companies in the world. And as I looked through the list uh, this week, it struck me very quickly. More than half of the corporations on the list are investing in clean tech in some way. And far more have deployed a significant plan to make their operations cleaner and more efficient. So Andrew Winston, as our corporate sustainability guru here, I'd love to hear your reaction when looking through this top 50 list, which comes out every year. I presume you think it's not a coincidence that the biggest companies known for being innovative in their approach to business are embracing clean tech. Yeah, I, I think there's, in a way, nothing too surprising here. I guess that that there's, you know, not uh, a huge amount of news in this is probably news. I guess, um, you know, if you compare this to the, there's a lot of leadership indices for green, and it's really hard to, you know, determine that. But I think, as you've just said, we kind of just know who's doing stuff. But if you, you know, if you compare the list to the CDP's leadership index, which just came out, the overlap is you know amazing it's it's very very high the the cdp leaders the ones who are being rated as doing the most on carbon and the most on on managing their footprint are are most of them are on this list of the of bcg's 50 most innovative i i think there's just you know in a way just like there's always been this kind of correlation without causation between business performance or stock performance and sustainability focus or clean tech focus uh, there's just a clear correlation, right? If you're if you're innovative, if you're thinking about where the future is going and how you want to change your business and be ready for a, a a different future or a volatile future, then you have to be playing in the in the clean economy world. So I, I think there's there's only a couple kind of surprises, I guess, on this list that you could argue have not done anything on the green front but are labeled as innovative, like you know an Amazon or something like that. But yeah, the rest right. makes it makes total sense. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you something, Andrew. So there are five oil and gas companies, like you know, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Chevron, Total, in the top 25 Forbes list of the largest global corporations, and there are none, no oil and gas companies in the top 25 most innovative companies list. I mean, they just don't – which is really interesting to me because there are a bunch of other large companies that have been around a long time, IBM, GE, Procter yeah. & Gamble, GM. All those guys are on the most innovative list, but the oil and gas companies aren't. Yeah, and and I would I would, you know, and there's kind of two caveats if you look at this list from BCG. They, there's clearly a bias towards tech companies Big since time. It, since it starts with yeah. Apple, Google, Samsung, Microsoft, IBM, Amazon, Tesla. You could argue is kind of a tech company. Um, but what's interesting is, as you said, you don't have the kind of big. A lot of the big physical companies, but there are a few. Like number nineteen is Ford, which we've talked about before, and I think I've talked about on on this program about their kind of setting of goals based on climate science and how they've innovated around their products quite a bit. So it's it's good to see, you know, that there are some big old 
brands on here that aren't tech, like GE, like General Motors, like Ford, um, that are getting some credit. And I think a lot of their innovation has been around um, cleaning up their products and, and making a kind of more um, resilient portfolio of products. But but you gotta you gotta take it with a grain of salt. This kind of list because there is such a heavy tech um, tech side. But you do see the big CPG companies on here too: Unilever, P and G, even Walmart is on here. And, and you got to think, well, what makes what would make them innovative in people's minds? Um, I think some of it has to be their their clean economy stuff. Yeah. Speaking of the energy stuff, I mean, there really are only two companies that are big in energy, Shell and GE. Those are really the only two companies that we could call energy companies. But clean energy procurement itself has become so publicly important to many of these other big corporations, whether they be tech firms um, or big retailers. It makes them, in a way, kind of all energy companies like they've never been before. You know, they're changing their yeah. procurement strategies dramatically. They're pushing them into new lines of business. So in a way, we can start to call many of these companies energy companies. It's a good point. I mean, aren't they all, really? Aren't yeah, we all? Yeah. So uh, looking at that top five, which is all tech companies, uh, there are some pretty big numbers here. I mean, cumulatively, let's look at them. They're Apple, Google, Samsung, Microsoft, and IBM. And they've cumulatively invested, just grazing over many of their investments over the last couple of years, around $10 billion directly into renewable energy alone. And then you look at Samsung, which is going a step further. It's got this big renewable energy division, and it's putting about $5 billion into projects in direct solar and wind manufacturing, specifically in Ontario. So that's kind of, that's the real deal. Um, and then you mentioned the automakers, Andrew. And one of the things I was surprised by was this strong drop in auto companies saying that innovation is a top priority. And there, the survey showed there was a 26% decline from last year um, among executives who say that innovation is their top priority. That seems like kind of a big deal to me. There was also a 9% drop in auto companies that said they were going to spend more on developing new products. So look at, looking at that, I guess it wasn't a surprise to me that Tesla jumped from 41st place last year to 7th place. It's an interesting point, and I, I don't know what it means, right? What does it mean to say that they're, it's not a top priority? Because you wonder, with this kind of survey, they can't dig into every dimension and say, well, what was the top priority for auto if it wasn't innovation? I mean, maybe there was something else about market access or um, – you know, or, or some other dimension that they're that they're more worried about yeah. than than innovation. Who knows? But you're right. I mean, Tesla jumps right up and um, and should be should be at the top. They've been really innovative. It's pretty subjective too. I mean, the word innovative is very loose, and a company could define it in many different ways. But That's right. but but in looking at that, so you said that there was this strong correlation between companies that are able to make decisions quickly, they learn from their employees, they're coming up with new products um, consistently, and those are the, the, the general metrics that they're using, the descriptions that they're using to call companies innovative in this survey. So in looking at those, like flesh out for me the attributes of the companies you're working with that embrace the, the broader environmental and clean energy initiatives. Are those attributes the ones that you typically see? That's an interesting question. I mean, what... what What's uh, comparable, I guess, across the companies that are taking things further or really um, making this deeper, a deeper part of their, their business? I mean, again, I, we've talked about it before. I, there's not many that I would say are really 
deeply bought in. But part of it is, and this sounds kind of silly, we have to say it out loud, but part of it is I think just actually believing that there's real problems or kind of believing in science, right? Um, and so you'd, you'd hope, I guess, that tech companies would also have a high correlation um, on that front, on saying, okay, there's, there's data to support um, a bunch of things about, about the, the, the kind of clean tech push we need to take, that, that the climate problem is real, that the economics on, on renewables are getting better and better, um, that, uh, you know, that, that, that the business models are in place, that the financing models are there, that you have to kind of believe the system is coming. And, um, you know, again, it seems like not a surprise there's a correlation with these, with these companies in tech that are always looking at changing systems, you know, that are, that in, are in markets that are shifting all the time. So I'd say those are, I mean, the attributes that BCG and others kind of highlight, yeah, I mean, I think that that correlates well. Um, I think that part you mentioned about kind of listening to employees or listening to listening, you know, listening to your marketplace and listening to employees, I think that's a really big one. When I, when I see companies that are really kind of moving quicker, a lot of it is that they're hearing something, you know, they're hearing pressure from their younger employees or their, you know, up and coming leaders. And they're kind of realizing that they're going, you know, as I've heard a number of executives say in different ways, that they're, they're just worried they're not going to be relevant um, in the near future if they're not understanding the world's megatrends and how they have to play in that kind of new sandbox and how to operate. And, and I've heard that, a version of that, multiple times from the guys that I think are really starting to get it, yeah. that they're just worried about being kind of out of date. Well, we're seeing more companies step up, and many of them are in this top list. If you want to uh, check out the 50 Most Innovative Companies list, we will link to it on the podcast page. And it is time to mention our sponsor, SMA. A properly maintained solar plant can increase yield up to 30%. Maximize production and accelerate your investment payback with SMA's operations and maintenance service, which includes round-the-clock, 24-7 remote monitoring for commercial and utility-scale PV plants. The O&M offerings from SMA are scalable to fit any size business and business model, and they're backed by the industry's number one service team. Uncover the full potential of your PV system with SMA service. Learn more at sma-america.com. In case you hadn't turned on your television or opened your computer in a while, I'll remind you that there is an election coming up here in the States. We'll be doing some post-election analysis next week, but I want to take this time to preview how uh, the outcome might impact utilities themselves and maybe some broader national policies. The global financial services firm UBS is out with a new report looking at some key state races, including Arizona, Florida, Ohio, and Wisconsin. And they also took a look at prospects for the production tax credit and perhaps even the investment tax credit extensions if Republicans win the Senate. Um, Catherine, I want to break a few of these down. You are looking very closely at all these races. I suppose the national picture is probably good to look at first. So what, what are the possibilities of getting a PTC extension through the Senate in a lame duck session and uh, does anything change if Republicans overtake the Senate in terms of strategy in that lame duck session? Yeah, so everything I'm hearing is that on the Senate, they're, both parties are pretty aligned on keeping the Expire Act that I mentioned earlier intact. So trying to make sure that all of these extenders are these provisions are extended for two years because remember they have to go retroactive. They ended at the end of 2013, so you really need to have two years to give them any time at all. And um, I met with a Republican, one of the Republican leaders yesterday, and they said, you know, um, we don't hear any 
anything, anybody discussing on the Republican side, an alternative to the expire act. We think that that's what we're going to do in the Senate. So I think the Senate is in pretty good shape. It's only passed the finance committee. It hasn't gotten to the floor yet. So they still have to do that. But on the house side, they haven't really done anything. You know, camp chairman camp, who is chairman of ways and means committee. That's the tax writing committee. Um, you know, he put together, he did a very bipartisan process, put together lots, a big, huge tax reform piece that, you know, was, was even if everybody didn't agree with it, it was something and it was done in a kind of a bipartisan way. But since then, what he's done is just taken a bunch of provisions to the floor and made them try to make them permanent. And so far, I think they've passed about a trillion dollars worth of permanent provisions without any offsets. So it's that versus this very small bill in the Senate. Now, on the House side, there is a bill that Blumenauer introduced that's basically the Expire Act with a couple of other provisions put in. Um, and so the Democrats are aligned pretty much, I think, with the Expire Act. The, the issue is, like, what is the House leadership going to do? I think I think it'll happen. I don't think that the election will significantly material, materially change that. I think it might be slower and I think you may have some shenanigans on putting amendments onto it, but I think in the end it'll pass, certainly fingers crossed here. Um, I think from a meta level, and I don't know if you want to, go, if you want me to go into the sort of the utilities Let's meta. meta Let's get meta. Okay. So utilities, I worked for utility and I've years ago and I've worked with utilities for a long time. You know, utilities basically donate to whomever uh, is in power <laughs> to keep them their friends. So they want to make sure that they build relationships and keep relationships with the people who are in power. And if it looks like um, the Republicans are going to be in power, they're going to give them more money because they want to have influence with whomever is there. Now, they, if you notice, they do spread their money around. They don't give it all to one party because they know they have to influence a lot of different people. And if it flips, they need to not be have made enemies on the other side. So I think that you know, utilities are usually fairly conservative about how they donate and to whom. Um, I would say this year you'll see the shift more to the Republicans. And some of the things that the Republicans are promising to do is to try to defund any work on the EPA rule. So, you know, the utilities are concerned about that. And so if that's something the Republicans are going to put on every bill, every spending bill, every, you know, budget reconciliation, anything they can do, they will on that. So that gives them some incentive to support the Republicans in that way. Um, I think there are other issues in states, though, that are more important to utilities. I think regulators are really the people who have the make the most difference to utilities. So in the 15 states where there are elections for regulators, those are ones to watch. And then, you know, governor's races, because in the other states, other than those 15, the governors appoint the commissioners. So um, then the governors would make the most difference. So I think those are the ones you really we really need to watch out for. It's a great point. We I actually hosted a crowdsourced panel at a conference in Boston where we had a couple hundred people who were voting on questions that I asked of the crowd. And one was uh, the biggest accelerator for clean energy by the end of the decade. And no one thought it was Congress. The vast majority of people actually thought it was local regulatory commissions. And that's to be expected, I suppose. But I think most of the people out there in the industry and the utility sector would agree with that assessment that it really is the regulators and to some extent state 
to some extent, state policymakers, not members of Congress. Yeah. And Stephen, the the 15 states where there are elected uh, commissioners, and some of them are elected by the general assemblies. But remember, some of these states are new solar markets like Mississippi. Now, I think their election is next year for all the regulators, but it's looking like the population wants there to be regulators that are pro-solar. So these those are going to have huge impacts on the utilities and how the utilities are positioned. Yeah. There were a couple examples here that the UBS analysts outlined where they, they thought they would have the most impact on some of the largest utilities in the country. So there is, of course, Florida, the governor's race, Charlie Crist against Rick Scott, and uh, someone like Charlie Crist, the Democrat, could potentially appoint someone less sympathetic to the big utility there, Florida Power and Light, uh, which is going through a rate case, and uh, they thought that it could force the utility to cut back spending. Um, In Arizona, of course, some solar-friendly Democrats lost in August primaries for the Arizona Corporation Commission, and the analysts expect the ACC to be much more open to greater fees on net metering but also expect some sort of compromise as well. So I think the big question is what kind of progress on the net metering issue will we see before new commissioners come on board? And uh, it looks like there's going to be this broader rate rate design case that will go forward before anybody really considers new net metering charges. And then in Ohio, where uh, Governor John Kasich looks like he'll get reelected. I mean, he's up by more than 20%. Um, He's, you know, rolled back, frozen the renewable energy standard there. And if he gets reelected, you know, that'll be good for AEP and First Energies, which will be the winners in that state. Did you think that there was anything interesting in that analysis, Catherine? Yeah, I mean, what I see is that, especially in the Florida one where they talked about Nextera, I mean, Nextera has a huge deregulated arm that is taking big bets on renewables and storage and, and Duke is doing the same. I feel like some of those big utilities now, I don't, you know, AEP and first energy, certainly not so much. Um, And so they want to kind of double down on the fossil side, but certainly some of these utilities that um, this is why I don't think the Florida race will, you know, I think they are well positioned next year is well positioned, no matter what happens. Um, you know, it'll there will be differences uh, depending on who gets elected in those states. Well, all in all, uh, some pretty big implications for renewables uh, and for regulation in in states around the country. So we will keep track of those. And next week, when the election results come in, we'll have a better sense for what could change and what will stay the same. Let's go on to our third and final topic: millennials. Depending on your level of positivity or cynicism. Millennials are either the most globally aware, technologically savvy generation ever, or the most distracted, dependent, self-obsessed generation. Millennials are, of course, the uh, people born between the early 80s and early 2000s. As a 30-year-old, I'm squarely in that group, and uh, also kind of feel the same conflict about my own generation. For many, those feelings about millennials extend to the environment as well. Some criticize their surface-level engagement and say young people mistake Facebook likes and virtual signatures for actual action. Others say millennials are more sophisticated about the environment and point to the surge in green MBAs and startups in clean tech working to solve big problems. In a recent op-ed at Grist, a millennial named Lisa Curtis argued that the term environmentalist just didn't fit her or many of the people around her, calling the term corrupted. So where does this put my generation? 
I'll go to you, Catherine, because you mentioned that your son is looking to get into renewable energy finance. He's very passionate about this stuff. He has a business-oriented approach. So maybe you have a more positive outlook on this. What, what do you think about the way millennials are approaching this issue and defining themselves? This is interesting. So if you look at millennials as 18 to 33-year-olds, I, I have two of them as my own children, which it kind of disturbs me that you're in that same segment, Stephen. Yeah, it's kinda, I'm sitting here. Kind of weird. Stunned, I'm in stunned silence that, that <laughs> you're a millennial. I mean, I, I'm feeling really old as a Gen Xer, which, Catherine, I'm assuming you're – you're, you are as well. I'm, or I'm kind of at the end of the boom, actually. Uh-huh. But um, so a couple of things. That, first of all, that, um, that grist blog was annoying to me. <laughs> Why? Uh, because, first of all, this, this woman said, oh, you know, they, those old fogies, all they focused on was legislation. Well, what I want to say is, like, if we didn't have that, if we didn't start in the 50s with – the greatest generation and then the baby boomers doing the Clean Air Act, the Clean Air Act amendments, the Clean Water Act, all of those really foundational pieces of legislation, we would all be living in Beijing right now. <laughs> I mean, basically, we wouldn't have the ability to then move forward with these cool technologies that allow us to have a lot more control over what we do. I mean, those were so foundational. So while some of the tax have changed, while some of the different technologies that we use to to engage in the environment of change, you know, you got to give a lot of credit to the people who really slogged in the vineyards to make sure that all this foundational environmental policy was put in place. Andrew, do you have a, I I take it you have a conflicted take as well? Yeah, I'm pretty, well, first, I I guess I'm I'm just laughing at the idea that we'd all live in China, because I guess with how much money the U.S. owes China, we may all have to move to China to pay it back. (laughs) I meant like the air in Beijing. Our Um, air would be like the air in Beijing. I'm also loving that on the air now we have um, like technically three generations, which is kind of kind of <laughs> bizarre since we're only probably 20 years apart ac- across the three of us. But um, I, I think, I, you know, it's funny. I read all the same stuff you have, and I've I've wondered about the millennials a lot, and we kind of we pin a lot of hopes on them, right? That they're gonna. I mean, I use them as like as a cudgel for business to say the next generation's coming into business. They they care more about this stuff, and everyone kind of nods their heads and agrees, but. You know, as as you've said, Stephen, the the, the data is not totally there. I've seen some numbers that say that, you know, the uh, the belief or intention in acting green is is okay or maybe higher, but that they're not actually acting any greener than the older generations, and that may be true. I, I but I think I, I think it's it's pretty clear that they're more connected, right? The stuff that I can that I say is that I can see is true, is that. The generation is clearly more connected, more technologically savvy, more, more expecting of transparency. And to me, those trends are a lot of what's going to drive better behavior in companies. Whether they mean it as an environmentalist push or they care about the word sustainability or not, it doesn't matter. They're just going to expect more and more that everything about everything they buy or anybody they work for is going to be open. And they're going to say, okay, you know, who made this thing? Where is it made? You know, were they paid a living wage? Is it toxic? Even if it's for selfish reasons, um, it's still going to drive change in a really, I think, in a very big way in companies. Um, and I think the one thing that we've seen poll-wise that, that's true is the generation, the younger generation, does not doubt climate change as a problem as much as anybody older than them. And that's, that's going to be, I think, a big help. Um, you know, as things always are with progressive movements, you need kind of the older generation to die out and the younger ones come in just kind of expecting change, expecting things to be a certain way. 
So let's walk through a couple of those uh, points that you made with some actual data. People want to know about this stuff. They've done tons of surveys of the millennial generation to figure out where they stand on the environment. So a Pew Research poll found that two-thirds of millennials agree that humans are causing climate change and that we need to do something about it. Another Pew poll found that 32% of millennials agreed that the term environmentalist describes them. So really only a third of millennials who believe that the environment should be a priority think that they're environmentalists, which I found very interesting. There's a poll from the Clinton Global Initiative that found 75% of millennials say they're more engaged on environmental issues than their parents' generation. But, uh, Andrew, you sent a link over to us um, from another 2013 uh, study looking at all these metrics, and they're very conflicted, right? Like, it shows that fewer millennials are recycling than their parents, fewer are... Uh, using reusable bags, which actually I thought was kind of interesting because like everyone here in D.C. uses reusable bags. I don't think anyone ever even uses plastic bags anymore. But then there are also other numbers that like more people are growing their own food than the previous generation. More people are picking up sustainable cleaning products and other similar products. More people are using that they're swapping products rather than buying new products. So it is very conflicted, and I'm not sure, based on the polling data itself, where I fall on this. Well, I think you know it is conflicted, and I, you know, when when these kind of numbers came out, and they said, "Look, you know, it was almost like a, a boomer kind of um, writer was like, see, we're not so bad. We're actually more concerned than than these whippersnappers.'" You know, and and I actually read the numbers and say, "Yeah, on some things, but when you look into those same polls, what's interesting is the stuff where the millennials actually showed a much higher." indication or much higher actually ch- behavior change was you know was what i would call the kind of the bigger ticket items like you said you know growing your own food they were twice as likely to buy an alternative vehicle like so you know my perspective is i could care less if they bring their own bag if the generation is much more interested in like having an alternative fuel vehicle and making their own food locally and doing the things that actually take more effort and and actually have a real impact so I, I think there are kind of lifestyle changes that are brewing that they're just more comfortable with, including the whole sharing economy, right? Which, you know, there's some, some debate around how, how much of a footprint improvement there is, but there is some. So I, I think there's, there's just different expectations about um, consumption coming from, from this generation in general. And I, I, so I, I, I try to remain optimistic, but, you know, but I, I think their role – as a pressure point for business is going to come as employees. You know, I, we can worry about their consumption habits, but in general, I believe people will consume better when they have better options, when it's easy for them, when it's cheaper, just like everybody. But I think their expectations of what the companies they work for do and how they behave is going, are going to be pretty high. That's really interesting. I have two polls I need to cite. One is scientific and one is not. Uh, Stan Greenberg, the political pollster, just came out with a poll today that he did in Colorado, Iowa, New Hampshire, and Florida, where he said found that an overwhelming majority of millennial voters, including Republicans, say that climate change denial would make them less likely to support a candidate, with more than 41% saying it would disqualify that candidate regardless of other positions. Wow. That was stunning to me. The other thing is I did a non-scientific poll of my children and their friends. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, like, what do you think about climate change? 
And some of them were like, I can't think about it. It's too scary. Um, there was not anyone who said, like you said, Andrew, there's nobody who doesn't believe it's happening at all. Um, they also thought that there's no evidence that we're actually doing anything to solve it at all. That one of them said, we're done. I could see the world ending in my lifetime. It's terrifying. I have nightmares about like giant storms killing me and my it's family. because you're feeding them your liberal environmentalism <laughs> propaganda, Catherine. <laughs> Maybe, but it's really interesting because I think they're hyper aware. And, and part of that, I think, goes back to the connectivity because they can see what's happening everywhere so easily. Right. So they're actually very hyper aware of human rights issues. They're hyper aware of what's going on with wars. You know, my daughter said, well, if we could stop fighting wars, maybe we'd have enough resources to fight climate. I mean, so it's kind of like this connectivity allows them to see into a lot of things that I think when we were growing up, we couldn't see very much unless you read a lot of newspapers. Yeah. Right. And, and and there's something very different too that is allowing millennials to be to do greener things without thinking about them in a green context. So many of them are moving to cities to be closer to the action and they're following their fellow millennials. And then they're getting there and ditching their cars for cost and convenience reasons, not necessarily for environmental reasons. They're you know, they're rejecting the notion that owning more stuff is somehow a sign of success. And this is partly because of the stories that we've told ourselves through pop culture, that living in the suburbs and having more stuff doesn't necessarily make yourself happy. And, um, and they're using mobile technologies to share things. They're also using less energy because they're more comfortable living in smaller apartments and houses, partly because they're becoming more urbanized. So there are a lot of these like dramatic changes that are more about lifestyle, and they're less about explicit environmental reasons, but they make millennials a little bit greener and they're making them use less energy i think that's a huge driver in all of this yeah we'll see if they if they have four kids and two dogs you know then what do they do and when i put on my kind of optimistic you know i guess hippie hat i i kind of hope that the connectivity it's not just seeing into the disasters happening around the world it's just staying connected and feeling connected to kind of everyone and that you know, climate change is a common good problem, right? It, 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 it's one of the largest kind of shared global challenges you can imagine. And it means having to, I guess, think that common good matters, which we have had a big pendulum swing against in this country. But I feel like we have a generation growing up where my son, who's 11, you know, he got on Google Hangout for the first time a year or two ago. And first I was like, oh, he's just staring at a computer. But then I realized he was talking to a kid who had moved back to Japan <laughs> the year before and they were just in a hangout together. And and he does, you know, uh, class connection events with, like, a class in Kenya they did last year. You know, like, they're just much more kind of global, I think. And and I, I think it's going to be easier, I hope, for this next generation to to think, well, what happens around the world kind of matters. I can imagine myself being in Bangladesh or being in a low-lying country somewhere and, and it affecting people like me, you know. So that's my optimistic Halloween thought for the day. (laughs) And I'll just go back with one last point about why I don't call myself an environmentalist, because I think the term has been uh, beaten down by opponents and it, and it does connote being liberal. And so for me, it is a kind of a political term as much as it is a description of someone's philosophy about the environment. And, you know, my, my approach to environmental issues changed when I picked up uh, 
Paul Hawken and Amory Levin's book, Natural Capital, when I was early on in college. And it made me realize that you could solve environmental challenges through business, not by saying no, but by saying yes and thinking about them through a capitalistic lens. And that completely changed the way I think about these issues. So I've never identified as an activist or an environmentalist. I don't even know what to call myself because I did I don't like labels, but maybe I'm an eco-modernist or an eco-capitalist or what have you. But there are a lot of people that I talk to out there that are just like me and people who listen to this podcast who are like that, who are going through green MBA programs, who are starting up businesses, who have that same mindset. And in my conversations with them, they don't necessarily consider themselves environmentalists in that traditional sense as well. I think, Stephen, that that's, you know, what that pushback on environmentalism is about. I think you've kind of nailed it. That, and, I, and that's why I'm okay with it because I think, like you said, environmentalism has been associated with a certain, not just fill it, you know, kind of political philosophy, but, but what many have, have interpreted as kind of a anti-human, right? Or an, you know, just pro-animal, pro. And I think there's some truth to that. It's not always been true, but there's been some truth to that historically. I think the really big environmental NGOs have, have changed on that pretty dramatically in the in recent years and are very human centric but i think that's why and and that's why i don't mind just like i don't mind to move away from the word sustainability or environmental to just to just be talking about you know kind of rationality and practicality and good business and um and thriving and these other words like flourishing that are starting to so you can say you're a flourishist or something like that like something <laughs> that somebody that just wants the world yeah. to be prosperous Right, that right. wants prosperity and is defining it not just as did you maximize shareholder earnings this quarter, but, but defining it in broad terms. I like that. Well, that is positive. I'm, but I'm also grateful for all those people, young and old, who are saying no to some things that are really bad. Because if absolutely. they didn't, then we would still have oh, those. Absolutely. absolutely. You have to. You need people protecting the global commons, right? And I, I'm a huge fan of what Bill McKibben's done on, on this front. But I, I kind of interpret it through the business lens and say – that the logic of kind of fighting oil and gas is very practical. You know, when they, as we said at the beginning of the, the broadcast, talking about kind of which, which line, which side of this line are you on, if you put yourself out there and say, we're going to burn all our reserves no matter what, that's, you know, by physics, I would say that means you're risking the planet. And by planet, I mean us, you know, humans. And so practically speaking, that's a really bad business plan. <laughs> and, and we need to fight that. So I, I think you can be, you can say we're going to defend the global commons and take this very kind of you know uh, activist stance, but it but it is very also very practical. All right, that is the uh, end of the show. But before we wrap up, we're going to tell our listeners something they don't know, and of course, sticking with the theme, we're going to focus on scary Halloween stories. Andrew, as the uh, fill-in host this week, you get to go first. All right, I think my my kind of quote scary factoid um, related to our, our field that's come out lately is a, a, a chart that was in the Washington Post in the last couple of weeks um, from data from the Union of Concerned Scientists showing the flooding that's going to happen in coastal locations, um, the projected number of days of coastal flooding uh, in 2030 and in 2045. Um, and it shows Washington, D.C., for example, having less than 50 days a year today 150 days in 2030 and 400 days, 400 events. So clearly, multiple times in some days um, during, uh, you know, in 2045. And I, I think this is scary because 2030, whether you're even a boomer, that's like pretty close, right? So 
we're painting a picture of what this is going to start to look like on a regular basis. Um, and I think this is the stuff that does kind of drive change. And this is my this is my spooky bedtime story for the day. <laughs> is that what you're going to tell your kids before before yeah. bed on Halloween? <laughs> well, you joke, but I had to explain to my eight year old for the climate march a few weeks ago or a couple months ago. I had to explain what we were going to a march for and explain climate change. And I thought I explained it fairly calmly and analytically. The next day he said, Daddy, I don't want to die. <laughs> um, so I think I might have screwed up a little bit <laughs> in the explaining. But there was a great line that someone had tweeted me when I tweeted this story. And they said that um, what, you know, what you can tell kids is, you know, we know what the problem is. Um, we've identified it. We know what the solutions are. And we're working together. You know, we're going to solve it. And that's, I think, that's being you know, legitimate and saying there's a real problem, a real thing to be scared of, but we're also going to, we're going to do something about it. Yep. It's hard enough to explain to adults. Yeah. Catherine, tell us something we do not know. Yeah, this is scary too. Um, so, and it's disappointing, super disappointing to me. The uh, Edison Electric Institute, EEI, which is the you know, trade association for the utilities, um, met with um, the National Black Caucus of State Legislatures and the Congressional Black Caucus, um, and they're pushing African-American lawmakers to oppose net metering, saying that it's bad for African-American communities. And it is just, um, it's devastating that they're doing that. It just seems um, really not a good approach at all, um, especially since so much of the work that, that's been done on the environmental front has really been done for civil rights reasons, um, to try to protect protect uh, communities that are underserved and underprivileged and um, communities that are more diverse. So anyway, that to me was very scary that there is this narrative that somehow net metering uh, is not good for uh, African-Americans. It's happening in Latino communities as well. Yep. What's your scary story? So uh, as you can probably tell from the style of this show, I am an NPR fanatic, and I think... NPR does some of the best environmental reporting out there, but I learned last week that the organization cut its environmental staff down to one person, and uh, this follows a similar move at the New York Times last year when the paper closed its environment desk and moved six or seven reporters to other places in the organization. So running a newsroom with limited resources isn't easy. I get that. And the Times and NPR argue that they're responding to other needs in the newsroom and new news cycles, but making... That kind of severe cuts at a time when people really need to understand complex topics like climate change, as was just illustrated by your description to your son. The local impacts of, of local and oil and gas drilling, the, the benefits and drawbacks of clean energy, understanding all these issues. Like, this is a very discouraging move to me. And there are plenty of other smaller publications trying to fill the gap, but having such large, credible institutions back away should, should give us major pause and make us worry. That is all for the show this week. Thanks very much to our sponsor, SMA, for supporting the program. And a big thanks to all our listeners who make it possible. You can read more about the stories we discuss on the show by clicking over to the show notes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe, follow us on Twitter, leave your comments there. We love seeing healthy debates spurred by our conversations. Andrew Winston, thanks for filling in this week. Always good to talk to you. Um, Got any special plans for Halloween? You got your shaving cream and toilet paper ready? <laughs> Just taking the boys out tonight. Taking the boys out to get as much 
much sugar as they possibly can fit in a bag. Um, <laughs> of which and then actually we do half. every year, so people know you can donate it. There's a there's a group that donates it to the troops because I guess they don't have a lot of sweet tooth stuff out out there. So we'll take most of it and end up putting it in a box and sending it sending it over to where the where the troops are. Oh, that's nice. I think a lot of parents would probably steal it for themselves, but they should. <laughs> yeah, I take cause. out the ones I like, and then the rest goes back to our orthodontist who pays the kids two bucks a pound for their candy. Wow. To destroy it? Yes. Wow. Well, I don't know if he destroys it, but he takes it. They didn't have that when I was a kid. I would have made bank. Yeah. <laughs> Catherine, are you hitting the streets or are you staying home with the kids? Yeah, well, so one of my kids will go with dad and I will stay home with my 13-year-old who has decided he's too old. <laughs> so he'll hand out the candy. With Catherine Hamilton and Andrew Winston, I'm Stephen Lacey. And we are The Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you all next week.